0: Hi, can everybody hear? Great, so I'll be reading two excerpts from my novel, American Heroine, which is based on the life of Grace Kelly in the 60s. This first excerpt is takes place in 1967. Red and white, red and white, red and white. The flags unfurled in the breeze, fluttering their pleasant song in the morning sun. The entire principality was swathed in the two colors. Flags hung from balconies, were draped outside the squares, swords bunting outside the casino, and flew from the backs of baby buggies. Dark-suited attendants, efficient and brisk, distributed flags to the crowd waiting at the Place du Palais. National Day was a celebration of heroism, of red for bloodshed and white for victory. Yvette felt numb. She processed out of the palace with Francois for morning mass, passing the guards lining up in the square. Soon, all 100 of them would be distracted at the parade grounds, and the principality's attention would be focused on the prince reviewing the troops. It was a proud moment for the soldiers, and the marching band was warming up its instruments of burnished brass, silver flutes, and giant drums. She was expected at the National Day Gala that night, A selection of townspeople would congregate in the opera house, clutching gold embossed envelopes to chests pinned with medals. The Order of St. Charles, the Order of the Crown, the Order of Merit. These honors, fiercely coveted, were presented by Francois each year to deserving citizens for bravery or long service. Commemorative medals had even been distributed. On her wedding date, selected civil servants, in honor of their helping to increase the prestige of the Principality. They would all just have to go on without her. At the Te Deum Mass, the raising of the host reminded her of what she was about to do. Hers was to be not merely betrayal, but an act of treason, the spiriting away of her children, the shining hopes of the Principality. The vestments of the priests shimmered white and ivory, blinding her as she knelt on their right-hand side, next to Francois. The organ music rose above her in dark splendor, as though in judgment. Opposite her, a somber crowd of government officials and foreign dignitaries bowed their heads, many of the same people who would be at the opera that evening. The mass concluded with a prayer for the prince's health, and Francois stayed impassively seated while the choir boys led the congregation in singing to the heavens, a euphony of soaring notes. Then the archbishop gave the blessing, and they processed out. At midday, she and Francois joined the children in the balcony to watch the parade. The troops gathered outside the palace in full formation. The carabinier marched in first, followed by the police, the sapeur pompier the firemen, and the Red Cross. A convoy of blaring fire trucks entered to an explosion of cheers and whistles. The Prince's motorcycle outriders followed with an intricate display. Twelve motorcyclists in white helmets staged an elaborate number, weaving their way around the courtyard, engines rumbling, smoke dissipating in long, thin curls into the crisp spring air. The band played the national anthem, and despite herself, she mouthed the words, A Nostra Libertà. At the presentation ceremony of baby Beatrice a month before, she had felt so helpless. Now she was taking back her freedom, but she only had a limited time to act. Want to come with me, Antoine? Said Francois to their son. I'm having lunch with a carabinier immediately afterward. Yvette took a deep breath and gripped Antoine's shoulder hard. If her son came with Francois, she would not be able to take him away and she was not leaving him behind. The boy looked undecided for a moment. He had seen the troops parading, and between going to the orphanage after the ceremony and bonding with the soldiers, he wanted to be with the soldiers. It was heady, big boy stuff. Antoine, the children are waiting for you, remember? She said in a neutral tone, even as her heart thumped. They've prepared a concert for us. It wouldn't be polite to keep them waiting. Okay, said Antoine. Duty before love, duty to honor and obey honor, loyalty, and devotion. The parade ended and the guards dismantled the barriers letting the citizens into the central square. An inrush of people ran to the balcony and a cry of joy erupted as Yvette, carrying baby Beatrice, appeared with Francois, with Antoine and Madeleine between them. There seemed to be an outpouring of emotion, a swell of love from the citizens, but she could not be convinced of its sincerity. They were cheering the institution, not her. And in fact, they had been given the flags. If they only knew of the unspeakable things that Francois had done to her, they would not be cheering now. She shuddered. Steady, she told herself fiercely. She had to go through with today as much as it broke her heart. Howell was waiting in the courtyard, waiting to take them away. Soon, she and her children would be far from here, And the present scene would dissolve as though in a motion picture and fade to black. They were going to America. So this next short excerpt I'm going to read is later on in the story, actually a flashback 10 years before, um, and that it's set when Yvette is actually a young actress invited to the Cannes Film Festival in 1955. So this is what privilege is, Yvette thought as she sipped her drink at the beachfront of the Carlton Hotel. The subtle signs of taste showed in the polished Christoffel cutlery and the crisply folded napkins. She wondered if she could ever grow tired of it. Everything was new and wonderful, with a lustrous sheen like that of a rare pearl. Being invited to Cannes was the first real recognition she'd had outside America. It was ironic that her character, the ordinary housewife in the film The Theater, had brought her here, the white hot center of le cinéma. The dominant observation was that Yvette Saybrook had been cast against type, the glamour girl turned plain Jane. She had shattered every stereotype and proven she could act. The critics did not know that she had more in common with the protagonist of her film than she would ever let on. At heart, she was still the girl with the glasses and the ratty cardigan. Scantily clad starlets frolicked outside in the sun, but they had fierce competition. She scarcely noticed the girls, as she could not take her eyes off Jean-Pierre. Sitting beside her in his khaki trousers, blue blazer and open-necked shirt, he looked every inch the suave continental. But she knew that inside he was a family man, a normal guy, just what she needed after the fiasco with Arthur Harrison. She saw her reflection on the glass as she caught a glimpse of the executives from the American delegation at the next table, their self-satisfied smiles wide as they tucked into their lobster pasta and sandwiches. The maitre d' was charming, perhaps too eager to please. They'll name a salad after you one day, said Jean-Pierre. Lettuce, red peppers, olives, endives, parmesan cheese. Why a salad, she said, because you're wholesome and good and virtuous. She was nothing of the sort, she thought. Let's go to the docks, said Jean-Pierre when they had finished their drinks. They spent the rest of the afternoon taking photographs along the harbor. She had done well to wear trousers and flats, as these allowed her to clamber atop one of the boats for a better view. She snapped the wooden fishing boats with their brightly painted hulls, The boys bobbing in the distance, the passers-by stopping for a look. She snapped pictures of Jean-Pierre, who made silly faces at her. Miss Saybrook, give us a smile, yelled a man. Laughingly, she obliged. The scrum had begun. In moments, she was surrounded by photographers. She posed a three-quarter turn in her ruffled blouse and cardigan, which she draped coquettishly over her shoulder. All right, she said. If you let me take my own pictures, I'll treat you all to a pastis at the brasserie down the road. That would be grand, Miss Saybrook, said another. Loud cheers erupted from the back. At the brasserie, she sat at the head of a long table set out on the sidewalk. Everyone drank cloudy liquid from small glasses. The sweet, strong smell of star anise mingled with the briny sea air. From time to time, Yvette pointed her camera playfully at the men. She liked little gestures like that, the complicity between actress and photographer, the delicate interplay between subject and artist. The photographers were worthy of studying themselves, a collection of motley crew coming together. Jean-Pierre pointed them out to her. There was Serge Hoffman, Guitan smoldering between his teeth. His family had been photographers in the Croissette for three generations. There was Robert Blanc, who had been a maquisard for the French resistance, aiding the escape of the Jews in the mountains during the war. There were many more she didn't know, but she respected them all. She had learned early on to treat photographers well, as they were the guardians of her image. Jean-Pierre looked on, beaming and proud. She was still in high spirits when her publicist, Mark Bolland Way, laid her in the lobby the next morning. It's been arranged, he said. You're meeting the Prince of Saint-Etienne. She was taken aback. Now? Tomorrow afternoon, I've got an appointment at the hairdresser's at two o'clock. She said, "This was no frivolous appointment. In a town swar- swarming with celebrities, she had to look and feel her best." She didn't mention that afterward, Jean-Pierre was taking her for a picnic in the Île Saint Honorat, an island of Benedictine monks where they could escape from the mayhem for at least a few hours. She could feel an important conversation coming on between them. Thank you very much.